0: Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started. Welcome back to the Anchored Podcast, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test. Folks, we've had some amazing, amazing guests uh, on the Anchored Podcast, uh, from Robbie, George, uh, Cornell, West, a number of amazing uh, college presidents as well. Uh, We're here today uh, with a leader, a thinker, uh, who has been at it a long time and has had an impact uh, on on character education uh, throughout the world and helping people to reimagine and rethink first principles regarding what we're doing with this whole grand project of educating the next generation. We are here with the one and only Dr. Marvin Berkowitz. Berkowitz is the McDonald Professor of Character Education and co-director of the Center for Character and Citizenship the University of Missouri-St. Louis. He directs the Leadership Academy in Character Education. Born in Queens, New York, he earned his BA in Psychology from SUNY Buffalo, and his PhD in Lifespan Developmental Psychology at Wayne State University. In his scholarly focus in Character Education and Development, he authored Prime for Character Education, Six Design Principles for School Improvement, Spanish Translation also available, You Can't Teach Through a Rat, uh, and other epiphanies for educators, parenting for the good in 2005, and more than hundred book chapters, monographs, and journal articles. Dr. Berkowitz, uh, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, uh, Jeremy, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have discovered your organization and your mission.
0: So you have uh, an incredible uh, career going back. I heard uh, to to a teacher award all the way back in 1983. I believe it was a Teacher of the Year Award. Uh, you've been in the education arena uh, for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you've been talking about uh, a return to, to, to virtue, to character education, I think before uh, it came on on the, 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 the national stage as a topic that now many, many people are discussing. Uh, but Dr. would we'd love to start at the beginning, actually, and hear a bit more about your own uh, educational journey. What kind of schools uh, did you go to growing up? And and were you dialed in? Were you bored? What was that ed- education like for you?
1: Sort of a timely question, because uh, recently I was on a, um, a retreat led by the Jubilee Center at the University of Birmingham in England, and it was held um, on the foothills outside of Rome. And there were about 20 of us and so on. And we spent a bunch of time cloistered together. And one of the things I started doing, I hadn't done it before, is asking people their origin stories, just as you're (laughs) asking me. And some of them were startling, the kinds of hurdles and misfortunes and so on that people overcame to become, all of them were very, very successful people at this point. And then I thought about myself and I realized something that I often say when I train people is that. Um, you know, when you look at people, you can make a profile of sort of their origins and whether there are a lot of hurdles to overcome, how many um, challenges they had, risk factors, what kinds of protective factors and resiliency they had. On the one hand, you have people who just have the deck stacked against them—functional, hmm. maybe abusive families, parents living in communities that are un- unsafe, and so on—and growing up war zones or wherever they're growing up where it's really awful. And on the other hand, you have people um, who really have been given all of the good luck in the world. You know, they Mm. grow up with nurturing families and safe and protective and enlightened communities and great schools and so on. And I was the latter. You know, I was one of those kids who was raised in a very healthy family with doting, loving healthy parents. Mm. Um, I lived in a community that was safe. I went to a public school district that was exemplary. Um, I had all those things going for me. An interesting caveat I tell people all the time is what I just did was not bragging because I had nothing to do with that. Mm. It was luck. I was lucky. But the answer to your question is I was lucky. I was dealt a great start in a great public school setting in the context of a healthy, enlightened community and a very healthy and nurturing family.
0: Wow. Wow. And then did you start uh, thinking through, I mean, you you went for undergraduate, you're you're up at SUNY in New York. Uh, Did you know going into college that you were going to pursue education? When did you decide you'd become a teacher?
1: Yeah. No, I really never decided to become a teacher. I grew (laughs) up in a community where the expectations for um, career education were pretty high. And there was a lot of scaffolding and support for that. So I, you know, I always assumed I would go to college. That was just a foregone conclusion. And then I assumed I would go on postgraduate to do something. And in our community, a lot of people went on to become doctors and dentists and lawyers and so on. Um, I was never really attracted to any kind of medical professions nor the legal profession. So the only thing that made sense to me was to go on and get a a doctorate in something um, and, you know, work as a scholar of some sort. I didn't really know what that meant at that point. And I was a math whiz as a kid until I hit calculus. Then I hit the wall. I had no idea what that was. (laughs) Tried twice, failed miserably at calculus. Uh, It wasn't math to me. It was philosophy of numbers or something. And so that was (laughs) the end of my. But the goal was to become a math major because I was so good at math. And so that ended. So I took a, sort of a smorgasbord of subjects. I took a philosophy course and a psychology course. In a sense, I was creating my own um, classical education, but it didn't go very far, as I'll get to in a moment. Um, and psychology grabbed me. I love the idea of um, understanding how other people think. Why Why do they do what they do? Why do they think the way they do? And I was always, partly because of my upbringing, um was very interested in morality doing the right thing honesty was a huge value charity was a huge value in my family and my tradition uh, I'm Jewish and that was part of you know uh this whole tradition um and so eventually kind of serendipitously they came together so I started su- studying psychology I took a phenomenal undergraduate course at a very high level um, from a guy named Bill Overton, who was a leading thinker in the field of of cognitive development at that point. Challenged the heck out of me, uh, Mm. but it hooked me. And so when I applied to graduate school, I applied to be a developmental psychologist. Um, I love this idea of as we develop, there are sort of revolutions or transformations in the way we make meaning of the world. Hmm. And eventually, when I was in grad school, I found out about Lawrence Kohlberg, a professor at Harvard, who had applied that to thinking specifically about moral issues. And okay. that's that's when I drank the Kool Aid and, and said, "That's it. That's what I. That's what I want to do."
0: Okay. And then, then during your your graduate studies, uh, is that when you began to kind of think through kind of mainstream education and and uh, I guess the the nope. departure? Okay, not quite yet. Not yeah. even close. Um, yeah. I was. I,
1: I, I, I finished my graduate work. I went to Harvard to work with Kohlberg. I was in the Harvard Grad School of Education. And hmm. I was studying education. But for me, at that point, education was mainly a vehicle as a social scientist to understand how schooling impacts the way kids think. I was still exactly. really interested in the, in the developmental psychology of cognitive transformation, and particularly hmm. cognitive tra- transformation around how people figure out what's right and wrong. And it so was something that was being studied as its impact on that. But for me, it hmm. was just that was just a variable in a psychology experiment, if anything. But I got sort of I got this insidious uh influence by working at the Harvard Grad School of Education for two years with Colbert and his team studying these schools. I got hmm. these hooks in me. I didn't realize that later came out to drag me back to education. And the way I tell the journey is I got a job teaching in the psychology department at Marquette university, a Jesuit okay. university in Milwaukee. I was there for sure. 20, 20 years. Um, and I started out as a social psycho a social scientist, developmental psychologist, studying this work from us a, a, as a psychologist, but being a closet educator, constantly going back to mm-hmm. thinking, about how does education impact this? How is it a, as a delivery mechanism? What's the nature of it? Um, what are the real operative factors, the um, active ingredients in education that help people become good human beings? And that kind of grew and grew and grew. Um, there tends to be a lot of places in antipathy between, between education and psychology. And, um, Educators see psychologists as living in, a, in a, you know uh, the ivory tower, and psychologists see educators as practitioners and not scholars. And so mm-hmm. so I had to be a closet educator. <laughs>
0: um
1: I sure. got involved more and more with national organizations like um the Character Education Partnership, which is now character.org. Um for, for a long time I was part of the Association for Moral Education, which is what okay. we're doing in the Colbert camp, which is a intensely international um, organization, but I would go off to these conferences and come back and be a psychologist. And then I got headhunted for the job that I have mm-hmm. now, uh, which is in a college of education.
0: So I, I got to ask you this question. Uh, you know, I, I can relate so much to your experience. My, my first three years out of college, I was teaching in inner city New York and Brooklyn. Uh, there was a, a, a great deal of, of brokenness in the community that I was teaching in. Um, there was a, I think, a sense of meaninglessness to interpret that suffering in any way, or even even talk about it. After that, I went to seminary, and in seminary, I mean, we, we weren't studying the history of education in any sense. But but it, it struck me kind of like an epiphany when I was in seminary, of like, holy smokes, you know, they were doing something, they were going after something almost entirely different for almost the entire history of education than kind of what we're doing now. I mean, they they would they would call it formation. You know, uh, they were about shaping the whole person. And I I, that was the first time I thought, holy smokes, like this is we're not doing that at all. We're we're just we're trying to get them through to give them this degree, to have this credential. It wasn't even passing on serious core knowledge of any sort at all. Um, Were you thinking during this time, thinking through the history of education and, and kind of the moment that you found yourself occupying? Not not a lot. Not a lot.
1: Um, my focus was kind of myopic. My focus was really, um, I'll give you, you know, sort of my elevator pitch about my calling, okay? Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to realize that I was doing it implicitly without any reflective awareness. I, come, I told you I'd come from the Jewish tradition. And there's a value, of, a, a term in the Jewish tradition called tikkun olam, which mm-hmm. means to heal the world. I once traced it back to some ancient, I mean, many millennia ago, ancient, ancient origin story that when God um, acts in, in the act of creation, there's collateral damage. Things are broken in the yes. act of creation. And that all human beings are brought into the world with a divine um, mandate to repair the damage in the world, to repair the mm-hmm. imperfections in the world. And that's part of whatever human being should be responding to. It's a divine mandate. And I realized after a while that that's what I was doing without realizing it. What I was trying to do is say, okay, I want a more moral world. Mm. What can I do in tikkun olam? What can I do to help contribute to healing the world? And the best I could come up with is the more moral people they are, the more moral the world would be. So can I engage in this project of formation that you're talking about? Can Mm. I use my developmental psychology, particularly my moral developmental psychology, to help change the influences on children. So we have an increase in the amount of morality embodied in the people in the world. And hmm. schooling was where I put down, you know, my, my, you know, I settled in. I said, this is a great delivery system. You get so many kids in the school all at the same time. It can, has a profound influence. I mean, I've dabbled in parenting. I have a parenting model. I've done some work there too. But to get to enough parents is a hard thing to do. Whereas in hmm. schools, you get a whole school or school district, you're affecting a lot of kids all at once. So that really, it wasn't, you know, certainly. Do I critique education? Of course I do. Okay, I, I'm not blind, um, but I don't come to it because I'm an educational reformer in the sense of holistic changing of schools. Hmm. Sure. You know, I often, you know, tell people that the primary focus of schools. Should be moral formation. Hmm. That should be the primary focus. And if you go back to some of the early writings in our society and other societies, that's clearly there. That that's what it's about. It's 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 nurturing future virtuous citizens of our grand experiment in democracy. Hmm. Um,
0: and so, so and let me ask you this. And by the way, I couldn't possibly agree more that the primary purpose uh, of education is is moral formation. I, I am wondering though, is is it, is it possible? You know, I I mean, when I I was fascinated when I was at at LSU, one of the few meaningful classes I actually took in education as an education major was the history of education. And, um, we talked about how, you know, really because of kind of denominational inviting among various Christian groups, they got, you know, religion and eventually kind of morality out of, of the school system that's going to be separate. Mm -hmm. And, and, but, it seems to me, Doctor Berkowitz, like the the whole history of education, going back to ancient Judaism, was grounded in in moral formation, True. and that you needed you needed an authority to say what the morals are. How does how does this work in a in a public school environment? I guess is the, the mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean that's always a challenging question that comes back to you: whose values, so to speak. There's many yeah. incarnations yeah. of that question, but that's that's the gist of the question. And um, you have a number of it's a, there's like forks in the road at that point. Which path do you go down? One path is one we tried, which was idiotic, which is to say, let's be values free. Yeah. Uh, you know, I what I tell people all the time is there's no off switch to character education, moral education, values, whatever you want to call it formation. There's no off switch to that. Aristotle said over 2,000 years ago that every adult who's around children will impact their character, whether we intend it like it or not. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that every passerby leaves their mark on people's character. And if you know the roots of the term character, it comes from the Greek word meaning to leave a mark to mark. Um, so, and this is such so Chinese culture, Greek culture, it's all over the place. We know for a long time, there is no off switch to this. So that's one path. Another path is to say, let's invoke a particular authority often a religious authority, but it could be a philosopher, it could be something else. Um, the problem with that is over the past two or three thousand years around the world, philosophy has failed to find the unified theory of Africa. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of similarities, you know, a lot of agreements, but there isn't one. You know, and the same thing with religion. Um, one of my, and I don't want to get too political about it, but one of my Concerns with the way that we make a lot of our decisions now, particularly with, um, why not be provocative? My, my old colleague and friend Dan McGuire, the Catholic theologian used to call the pelvic morality of the Catholic Church mm-hmm. is that, um, we take a, part- our particular religion and say the whole world needs to adhere to that. Okay. Um, and, you know, I have great difficulties in just forcing one particular narrow point of view. So the other path is to say, let's try to find some common denominators. Let's Mm. try to find some core values, virtues. Um, Okay. Some people may find this a little challenging, but I remember many years ago I was cornered, I think in Ontario in a cold, dark school. No, it wasn't actually, it was in Wisconsin. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this was in Wisconsin, a cold, dark, rural school after everybody had left from a session on this. And I had these two fundamentalist Christian couples there who were utterly dogmatic and just rejecting this. And Mm. I was banging my head against the wall. And I finally looked at them and I said, look, I don't want in any way to propose anything in schools that violates your faith tradition. I'm not here to do that. I said what I'm going to do, this was very obnoxious, but it was the only way I got through to them. I was desperate mm. at this point. I said, I'm going to tell you the values that I'm proposing. And you tell me which ones Jesus would have hated.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: And I said, let's compassion. Because if Jesus is against compassion and caring and concern for others, we'll drop it from our list right now. They go, oh no, no, no. That's you know, mm. that's great. I said, how about respect for persons? Because if Jesus was against that one, you know, and I went down this list of these five core values or virtue, they're really values, you know, that come up all the time. Respect, responsibility, caring, fairness, and honesty. They always come up at the top of these, you know, consensual Mm. lists. And they said they were all good. At that point, they backed off and said, yeah, I guess that's okay. After all this dogmatic resistance. So I'm not saying it's necessarily easy to do that, but it's not that difficult. And, you know, furthermore, there's a value added in that, which is when people feel that they are co-owners and co-authors of a journey, they commit more mm-hmm. to it. So when we do these communal processes, where together we say, what do we really most care that our kids become? Mm-hmm. We, we are you know, we agree to them, we embrace them, and we follow them, and we support them more strongly. I do believe you should have philosophical scrutiny to make sure nothing gets in there um, that doesn't belong there. I had this argument years ago with Amitai Etzioni, the communitarian sure. um, guy who who uh, wanted to talk about communitarian, communitarian approach to this work. And I said, Amitai, you can't do that alone because what if you're in Nazi Germany and, and ask them to come up with the values? Um, there right. has to be some ethical standard to make sure they're okay. But by and large, people come up with things that are um, pretty universal and not and non-controversial. So that's hmm. another way to go, you know. And I think, in a sense, if we understand our mission is to help these kids become the best they can be. Yeah, I just came back from a conference in in uh, well, it was a global conference, but I was at the South. Hmm. I was at the, the Bogotá, Colombia site on human flourishing, hmm. and you know, if we understand it. Broadly, it's bringing out the best in people, helping human beings flourish, helping them be the best and most ethical people they can be. Usually, we don't go that
0: wrong. Hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we talk a great deal, uh, maybe too much, uh, about C.S. Lewis, about the abolition of man uh, in this podcast. And I think it's not just an abolition of man, but elsewhere as well, that Lewis points out that what's really remarkable is not the differences in different moral Different different laws, which are essentially, and even Barack Obama, this is the way Barack Obama described our our moral our, our law system, uh, is that it's essentially uh, the the reflection of our collective uh, religious consciousness. You know that we're putting these things we we believe deeply get codified into law. Lewis points out that it's it's what's really striking is not the differences, but the overwhelming similarity. You know, if you go to the most remote you know tribal group in maybe the South Pacific versus you know highly developed civilizations what you just said honesty is pretty much valued and you really can't find examples of a culture where honesty is not valued or I, I
1: do have, i do have one for you but it's okay yeah okay i mean i just always be cautious um you know when we say that it's always this and I'm always going to add the phrase in there, except when it's not. Um, okay. <laughs> there's always an exception. I had, I had a student who was a Marist monk who came to study with me years ago, um, who worked in the South Pacific to recruit um, people to join the Marist brothers. And he would fly to these little islands. And there was one island there where the norm was to answer every question, saying what you thought the person would want the answer to be. And hmm. he said it would drive him crazy because he couldn't do assessment. He couldn't he couldn't get the truth from anybody um, so there there are places in the world but they're so, really exceptions
0: yeah so what, what was the process though and you you listed these five core you know honesty respect for persons yeah. how did this develop this this kind of core list um it I saw it come up in two formal
1: places. One, I was at the Aspen Conference in 1992 when Michael Josephson and the Joseph Institute created Character Counts. There were about 30 of us experts invited to fly into Aspen and do this work. It was a, a dirty job, but someone had to do it. So I bit the bullet and went to Aspen for a week or a weekend or whatever it was. Um, but Michael Josephson asked us to come up with um, a, a, he had a process and to come up with a set of core values. And I thought it was stupid and I was the guy who was resisting, but you know, he forced it on us, and we came up with six, you know, the, the six pillars of character, as they call it. Um, okay. and it was those five plus civic something or other. I forget the word he used, the term we used for back then. And then Rushworth Kidder at the Institute of Global Ethics did a similar thing internationally, surveying people and came up with those core five, I think the same mm-hmm. five, I believe. Uh, and I've then seen it in schools at school districts where they go through a process. Uh, my colleague, Avis Glaze, who used to be the head of literacy, numeracy, and character ed for the province of Ontario um, during their heyday, um, when she was a superintendent, she spent, I think it was four Wednesday evenings convening people from all around the community to go through a process. And they came up with... The same or a very similar list. So, mm-hmm. You know, I've seen that in individual schools. You know, they don't always come out exactly the same,
0: but there's a lot of overlap. Okay. And do, do you find yourself? I mean, do you get in conversations with? I, I'm hesitant to say that you know that people are still pushing moral relativism because I I don't know that that is
1: mm-hmm. happening.
0: I, I think that a lot of the values that are very much pushed in schools right now uh, reflect actually a pretty religious way of looking at the world right i think we could we could talk about that um but i mean do folks push back on you and say you know what you're you know you're you're introducing a a vision of the world that believes in absolute truth and that is a religious vision and uh do people push back on your project in that sense um i don't argue for absolute truth okay? okay
1: what i argue is um progress, in essence. And the idea is, for me, is, and I believe very much you invoked Barack Obama before, and he had woven in this Oval Office, a quote from Martin Luther King, the arc of history uh, is Hmm. long, but bends towards justice. I'm paraphrasing, but he had that on a carpet in the Oval Office, apparently. Uh, I've always believed strongly in that. I think of myself as a long-term optimist. I think if you look at history over long swaths of time, you see clear moral progress. As soon as you narrow in, then you see all the bumps and blemishes and everything else. But over Mm -hmm. a long sweep of time, it's happening. I'm a firm believer that we always want to move forward. We always want to try to be better than we are. I don't Mm -hmm. know that, well, I certainly have mentioned this many times that I say always aim for perfection, but never expect it. Because if you expect perfection, you've just baked into the whole thing and guaranteed failure because we won't get there, we'll never be perfect. I don't know that we'll ever reach absolutes. I don't know whether I'll be able to answer if there are or are not absolutes, but there's certainly better or worse, okay? Mm. Um, and so my my goal is to always move towards better and over okay. longer term, you know, the long-term better, not just the right now immediate stuff. That's part of what's wrong with schools. Our schools mm. and our society, and much of Western society, are products of capitalism. They're products of a market mentality, and the idea is that we have a product in mind, mm. and you change the you know the the language of what the product ought to be. But we are factories, mechanical. Mm. I think Definitely. of schooling and child development as organic, not mechanical. Mm. We're nurturing the flourishing of human goodness, and we're trying to you know move people on a trajectory where they grow and become closer to the best they can be. We're never perfect, we'll never be the best, um, but we're moving in that direction. So I don't know that I can get pushback saying that I'm handing out an absolute truth to anybody. I'm a firm believer in progress though, and that we can be more moral than we are now. And for me, if we're moving if we're putting things in place to move in that direction, I'm okay.
0: OK, uh, you know, the re- one of the reasons I reached out, I was at the University of Navarra, truly one of my favorite universities uh, on the planet. It's an amazing. It's a great university. Great university. I talk about it a lot on the Anchor podcast, uh, but we, we were in their education uh, school uh, and you were getting quoted left and right. And I thought, why I, I, we've got to have, have Dr. Brickwood on the Anchor podcast here. Um, but you've got your pulse on not just what's happening in American education, but really globally sure. as well. Are different nations in different places, is this a, a global phenomenon with people going back and considering, wow, you know, we, we, we've gone in this hard direction of credentialing and, and information, factoids, as you call them in some of your videos, factoids, uh, and have, have neglected uh, the heart, the cultivation of character. Um, what is what is going on globally? Yeah, it's it's so
1: diverse. It's It's hard to, you know, capture it all. But there is a lot of interest in saying that schools have been failing in their sort of monolithic or myopic focus Mm. on academic achievement. Um, It's it's inadequate. We need more. I'm even getting that out of places like, you know, People's Republic of China, um, uh, Indonesia, Kenya, you know, lots of other places Mm. that you may not expect as much. Clearly, in Western society, there's a, a a strong understanding of that um i mean my quick history of it is you know back in the starting in the 50s after world war ii we really lost our way and we, we really wanted to turn out the best technicians and scientists and 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 you know industrialists and so on we could so schooling, the product became that. It focused in. We had the back to basics movement. We had the panic after the Soviets put up Sputnik and that we're losing mm-hmm. the space race. And you know, we did all that kind of work, um, and we lost our way mm-hmm. in that regard. And that also dovetails with something you talked about before, which is this notion of taking anything that smacked of religion out of public schools. People completely Hmm. misunderstand the First Amendment. Um, You know, it doesn't say we can't talk about religion. It just says we can't promote a particular religion in our public schools. And that, furthermore, this is conflation of morality with religion. So if you talk about anything about values and morality, people were afraid, Hmm. well, this might be about religion. I mean, there's thousands of years of secular ethical philosophy out there that are not, it's not specifically about a particular religion. Yes, you could talk about ethics and morality without a particular religion, but that all got taken out. And then in the early 90s in the US, at least, really, there was a move to say, we got to get back into this. It started a bit earlier, but there was a heavy jump start in the early 90s. And the other parts of the yeah. world, that kind of epiphany is happening at different points. And hmm. so people are interested. But sometimes they're interested in it through the lens of their relatively monolithic society. So Indonesia is exploding with character hmm. education, but so much okay. of it is funneled through the lens of Islam because they're an Islamic state. Um, hmm. And you know, saw that also to a degree in Pakistan. Um, there's a, a a number of moves now in the Middle East. Um, there's one in Lebanon. There's one in the United Arab Arab Emirates um, that are trying to do this. But you know, they're limited in how broadly they can think about it because they have a mandated world view that things have to correspond to that. And I think that in some ways is going to limit how successful they are at this. Um, uh, So, so, you know, it's growing a lot in South America right now, massively.
0: Um, Is this born out of, I I think we've witnessed even in the past two or three years in the U.S., uh, really almost a complete breakdown of civil dialogue, the ability for people who don't agree on politics to sit down and have a functional, healthy, rational conversation uh, is this breakdown in, in kind of like civil, I mean, is this is this rooted in education? What what didn't happen maybe in K-12 for so many Americans?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of part of me as I watched the last, I don't know, maybe decade a little bit less of transformation, particularly in Western democracies, of what I see is you know just the utter fraying of democracy. It's mm. coming apart at the seams. It happened in the U.S. with the, you know, the, it happened in a whole bunch of countries simultaneously, I thought, although I thought we jump-started it with the election of Trump in this faux populist notion. Mm-hmm. that You know, these folks who really were selfish authoritarian hedonists. Um, You know, we saw it in the UK, we saw it here, we saw it in Colombia, we saw it, you you can go around, you know, in Brazil, you can go around the world and see these things popping up. Um, And I thought, you know, as I looked at that, I thought, we failed. We failed. You know, we're trying to educate for human goodness. And it wasn't so much those leaders, it was the electorate Hmm. who voted for them. It was the electorate who I thought, and, and I don't want to, you know, paint everybody with the same brush, but there was an overrepresentation of selfishness, grief, uh-huh. people voting for that, hatred, whether it was mm. xenophobia, racism, whatever it was, hatred, fear. You know, I remember mm. Michael Moore's movie, I think it was Bowling for Columbine, which was yeah. all about this notion that powers that be are trying to breed fear so they can manipulate mm-hmm. People. Well, I think we saw it over the last five, 10 years. I think he he was prophetic in that regard. (laughs) We look at what happened. And so we have an electorate that instead of voting for human goodness and progress, they were voting for greed, hatred, and fear. Wow. And I think we failed to shape the character of the electorate. And not just in the US, in lots of places in the world where people are selecting. So let me ask you: that. Have we hit bottom, uh, Doctor
0: Berkowitz? Have we hit rock bottom yet?
1: Or, or- Beats me. I have no idea. No way of knowing if we we hit bottom. Whether we're, you know, I can't. I can't tell the future. And if you remember what I said before, I'm a believer in long-term progress. So I'm an optimist. Uh-huh. But I'm not a short-term optimist. I'm a okay. long-term optimist. So whether it's going to get worse now before eventually someday gets better, hmm. can't, can't answer. I don't know.
0: Okay. Okay. And are, are you seeing right now just in terms of incorporating some of the elements uh, of your work, uh, character education, uh, CLT, you know, we, we, we very much, uh, we, we've had our first seven years, uh, most of the adoption has been within what is often described as a classical renewal movement. And so we're talking about classical charter schools where absolutely there's a heavy, heavy emphasis on character education within a lot of Catholic schools and Christian schools as well almost not at all in kind of the mainstream public school arena. Um, Is there broad receptivity and incorporation of of some of your work into the non-charter world, but just the main mainstream K-12 world? Yeah, we're getting it everywhere.
1: Um, And I'm, I'm actually surprised at how, how much receptivity we're getting. You mentioned that my book is now also in Spanish. Well, it's also in Chinese and there's an attempt now. Mm. And I didn't, I didn't do any of that. People came to me and said, we need it in our language. Yeah. Um, and now there's an attempt to get it into Portuguese for Brazil. Um, we have projects going in um, Colombia, Kenya, Mexico, Taiwan, Spain, Peru. Um, mm. And these are all folks coming to us. In fact, we can't accommodate them all. We're running out of... You know, the the staffing to do this. I mean, you met Juan Pablo Dabdub, who's a professor at University of Navarra, who's one of my proteges, and he's doing a lot of this work now. And I've got, you know, CoSchool is an organization in Colombia, in Bogota, that's doing Mm -hmm. a huge project there. And, you know, and we've got so we've got all these different groups that we're trying to get to the point where they have the capacity to do this without, you know, my team being involved. I don't want to that yeah. is monopoly here. I'm interested in getting the good work out there. Um, yeah. but you know I might quickly introduce the model that we're using, which is the prime model. you mentioned the book because basically what we've done over the last 20 some odd years is look at all the research on character education, say what turns out to be effective, um, mm. how can we distill that down into some guidance for educators So as you talk about the classical education movement, you know and educating for character, my mania is, are you doing, you have the good intentions, but are you doing that which really works? What I've found is educators come to education with golden hearts for kids. And mm. this classical movement that you're talking about, at least the way you spin it, is with golden hearts for kids. We want these kids to not only yeah. be educated in the things they ought to know, but we want them to be good people. Yet educators often have no clue what really works. And they do some stuff that's useless, wasting time, and sometimes even harmful and counterproductive. Um, you know. And so what we've done is try to figure out what really works. And we came up with lots of stuff, but we tried to distill it down to six what I call design principles. Okay. One is, and you've got this one down pat already, I think, it has to be an authentic priority. Hmm. It really has to be part of our primary focus and mission. Sounds to me like you've got that. So that's the P in prime. The R in prime is about relationships. Relationships are the molecules from which we build great schools, great learning, and great <coughs> And the thing with relationships is they generally will happen in schools where people are well intentioned and nurture it, not for the people who need them most. So we really need to be structural, intentional, strategic um, about this and inclusive. All, all stakeholders in the school have to be included. And so you need the mechanisms to do that, the intentionality, The I in primed is about intrinsic motivation. All of this is pointless. If people just learn to execute behaviors when they're being watched or when it's convenient, this has to be internalized as virtue, has to be internalized as psychological character, has to mm. become intrinsic to who you are. It's different pedagogy for that. Starting giving kids public recognitions and rewards doesn't do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, in many cases, it mitigates against the internalization of those virtues and values. And so many schools are running around announcing who are the best kids of the month and giving awards and giving rewards for this stuff. And they're actually taking their legs out from under themselves because that undermines this. Uh, The M in prime is for modeling. And this is a tough one. It has a lot to do with the adult culture. One of the most under leveraged aspects of schools is the adult culture, the adults as models, the adults um, as a community, an or Tom Lacona calls it a professional ethical learning community. Um, And most school leaders have no clue that that is their job, probably their primary Mm -hmm. job, nor do they have any equipment on how to do it. They don't know how to lead an adult Mm -hmm. culture in a school. The E comes back to democracy. It's about empowerment. All human beings need to feel they have some control over their lives, they have some influence, their partners, their co-owners, their co-authors. Schools are hierarchical authoritarian structures, tend to be. Mm. Um, They are disempowering, and we miss out on that fundamental human need. So we need to figure out how to flatten governance structures in schools, honor voice, and so on. And the D, finally, is developmental pedagogy which says that we shouldn't be educating for the short term, we should be educating for the long-term development of people. And we need a different pedagogy for that. We need to understand how to do behavior management, how to do academic education and everything else in ways that have a long-term impact. Mm -hmm. Sometimes even a time-release impact. Sometimes you don't even see it immediately. But down the road, it'll matter. So that's, if I can get schools to do that, and this is what people seem to be attracted to right now, then, you know, to quote Dr. Seuss, oh, the places they will go.
0: <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, Dr. Berkowitz, we always end the Anchored podcast uh, talking about the books, the books that have been most formative for our guests. So the question is usually framed as the book that you go back to, that you reread. I, I want to nuance it just a bit for you. First question, what do you recommend from what you have you have written uh, for our audience? Uh, maybe maybe the, the first time hearing about your work.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I I would recommend that book I just talked about, the most recent one, which is Primed for Character Education. Uh, Routledge is the publisher. There's a Spanish version out of the University of Navarra, their press. Um, Yeah. And um, there's a Chinese version also um, that comes out of Taiwan, actually. Uh, But it's primed for character education. Uh, Okay. And then
0: what what has it been for you then? Is there a a book that has been most uh, formative in your own thinking?
1: There have been a bunch of them at different stages. I mean, the first thing that happened to me was my undergraduate class with Bill Overton, where he made me read source material from Jean Piaget. Hmm. It's not easy stuff to read. It's translated from French, and it is some deep and difficult stuff. Piaget was a genius. But it pushed me to really think differently about how I understand human development. So that's that's one. Um Uh, Another one that became important for me is, and you'll, I mean, you're going to just love this. Uh, When I finished my postdoc and went to Marquette University as a faculty member, I got two grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Basically, in my image, I realized, having worked with Larry Kohlberg at Harvard, that- Uh He was a Renaissance man. He was reading sociology and theology and philosophy and psychology and just you know, went on and on and on. And he kept dumping these books on our desks and, and have us you know read them. There's one by uh, Frankina um, that was just a s- bull primer on ethical philosophy that you know blew me away. Um, but I got these two grants to be taught ethical philosophy. I got two ethical, two philosophers to teach this course, and we read Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, which is one Hmm. I would put on everybody's list to read. But we read John Stuart Mill, and we read you know, and so on and so on. Um, uh, And that was important. But the Nicomachean Ethics by Aristotle is is a biggie. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, Hmm. Viktor Frankl is another I think critical thing for everybody to read. But the only books I've ever read over and over. Or Tolkien yeah the whole Tolkien series probably four or five times The Hobbit and the you know Lord of the Rings long no, time, I, time I haven't read them again um in quite some time but I did read the entire four books to my son when he was little I said well there. And,
0: and connect the dots there I mean I, I was gonna ask you I mean literature fiction in particular in terms of shaping the moral imagination in terms of shaping yeah. character I'll say to my nine-year-old Johnny sometimes, They'll you know, say so you, you're being a bit of an Edmund. Edmund is a character from uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, who's oh, okay. you know, right, right. A, a bit of a pill, you know, at times. And and uh, but that it's a lot more powerful than say, you know, you're being a bit of a pill. Or you're being you know, yeah. to say you're being a bit of an Edmund. That, that's pretty packed. And he knows he doesn't want he doesn't want to be an Edmund. Um, to speak about that, if you would, for a moment, like the the connection between fiction and character development.
1: Yeah, one of the things I did a long time ago in one of my classes, you you will will I think you'll enjoy this and what you've done. I was teaching adolescent psychology, and I decided to require everybody in the class to read, well, it was a mixture of fiction and nonfiction. It was either uh, fiction or a biography or autobiography in which mm-hmm. the protagonist was an adolescent. Okay. Catcher in the Rye is a good example, things like that. And I went to the library and I asked the librarians to help me compile a list. And everybody had to pick one, start reading at the beginning of the semester. And as they learned adolescent developmental psychology, they had to psychoanalyze the character and invoke what they were learning. And that Hmm. was their class paper at the end was, you know. Not psychoanalysis in the Freudian sense, but just to analyze the person according to psychology, um, based on what they learned about adolescent development, and say, ah, this is where he went through the identity crisis, or here's where he was dealing with, you know, his nascent um, sexuality, or here's where he began to be able to use logical thinking as his thinking transformed, or here's where <laughs> um, the self consciousness came in, or um, and and it was it was a, a wonderful way to bring together not
0: only fiction, but sometimes fiction, and what we were learning. And we are here uh, with the one and only uh, Dr. Marvin Berkowitz, uh, one of the world's leaders in character education. Uh, Dr. Berkowitz, uh, what an honor to have you on the Anchored podcast today. Uh, Please come back and join us in the future.
1: Great. And good luck to you with the work you do. I'm really intrigued by it.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues.
1: Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.